Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Uh, welcome to the Two Testaments podcast, where we take you on a guided journey through scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at the first two chapters of Job, and we're joined by Dr. Brent Strawn. Now, Brent Strawn is professor of Old Testament and professor of law at Duke Divinity School. Now, he's the author of, get this, Ronnie, over 200 articles, book chapters, uh, reference contributions, and reviews. Uh, Brent, I don't know how you find time to do do all of that. Do you write them in your sleep or something, or what? I'm working on that. Cloning would be even more productive, but as far as unsuccessful. He's also... He's also the author of several books, including uh, one of my very favorite books to teach to students, to read with students. The Old Testament is Dying, a Diagnosis and Recommended Treatment. And one of the things I love about teaching this with students is that I find that coming into reading the book before they start reading, uh, students come in with two basic opinions, either Strawn is wrong. The Old Testament is not dying. It's great. It's fine. Or I don't care <laughs> about whether the Old Testament dies or not. Just let it die. But by the time they finish this book, both of those schools, both of those schools of thought are agreed that, yes, the Old Testament is in some trouble, but saving the Old Testament is really important. That encourages me. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, no, great book. Uh, now, in, 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 in addition to being a great scholar... Brent is also a great father. And I can tell you, let me tell you how I know this, because. <laughs> Have you consulted with the, par- with the kids before you say this? <laughs> no, no. And the pain of verification. Well, well, I can tell you because um, two of Brent's three children so far have made really wise choices. Okay. Yes. Um, so two of his three children have chosen to come to Samford and study at Samford. One of them has That's even true. chosen to take classes with me. So that has to be That's credit. True. That's true. And she bring... signed up for another one. She signed up for another one. Yeah, I can't wait. She's now, just... I heard that her paper was so good, though, that you're wondering whether Brent may have had more than a slight <laughs> hand in it. Is that right? <laughs> We won't go there, but I mean, that's a a good part of being a good, a good parent is helping your child as they're doing their research, helping them write excellent uh, exegesis papers. I'm always there for, for consults. So Brent, uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of uh, the text of Job chapters one to two, let's uh, just want to know what first drew you to the book of Job. So Job, I think was sort of always there as this sort of, uh, you know, uh, quintessential statement on suffering. Um, I don't know if I really paid a whole lot of attention to it, though, um, as a young person, but I remember becoming really fascinated with um, what some people would call the wisdom literature. (laughs) We don't want to say that in this company. What some people would call the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. Uh, I became really interested with those things when I started teaching, actually, when I began my teaching career. Um, and uh, for various reasons, I found that students, um, I thought, needed to hear from these books. And um, Job was one of those, obviously plays an important role in that in that little corpus of, of books, uh, if you want to talk about them in that way. And um, 
comprised actually a, a sermon that I wrote when my first year of teaching full time, uh, I preached in chapel and, um, and that process of working on that sermon that was later published, uh, that, that was a really eye-opening and enlightening and actually a kind of a turning point for me in understanding things like the Odyssey and stuff. So I think it's, it's the, that kind of confluence of factors, really beginning teaching and what Job offered vis-a-vis uh, -vis Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and then also what it, what it offered me in thinking about the nature and doctrine of God through that sermon for that first uh, seminary appointment I had. Yeah, that published sermon, actually, I had a chance to read it, and uh, it's fantastic. If I don't have the reference in front of me, though. Do you know if, we, if someone wanted to read that, where they yeah. could find it? It's, I think it should be easily online. It, it was published in the Journal for Preachers in um, 2014, and it's called Is God Always Anything? Yeah. Uh, so if they Google my name, that title, Journal for Preachers 2014, I, I think it should come up for them. Great. We'll try and put that in the notes. Okay. Too. So um, we're, we're, uh, we've asked you to come and really kick off this whole series as we look at the book of Job by looking at what's often called the prologue. So that's chapters one and two of the book of Job. But um, some have suggested that the prologue may not actually do justice to these chapters because by calling it the prologue, it suggests that the real meat of the book starts after the prologue, when we get into the poetic section of the book that starts in chapter three. Right. You have any thoughts on that? I know you've thought a lot about the, the relationship between narrative and poetry in the Old Testament more broadly. What do you think about the relationship between narrative and poetry here, and particularly that term prologue used for these chapters? Yeah, well, as you know, well, <clears throat> better than I do, the, but maybe the audience would like to know, there's, there's compositional questions here in the history of biblical scholarship. You know, why is the beginning and end of Job prose format? And why is this large center poetic? Uh, and does that mean that these were originally discrete compositions in some way? If they were, which came first? How do they relate to one another? And this is the sort of thing that keeps biblical scholars in business. It keeps them <laughs> up at night. It keeps them writing and posting things on Academia EDU. And it's basically funded, you know, centuries of German biblical scholarship, these <laughs> kinds of that kinds of compositional questions. Um, and, and they may be right. I mean, <clears throat> I don't claim to know. I don't have a really strong opinion on the, the, the quote unquote prose tale versus the poetic cycles being earlier or late or originally discrete. Um, for me, you know, the, the evidence we have, the actual evidence we have at hand, manuscript evidence, it shows that we don't have any manuscript at all that didn't have these things together in the form that they are. Uh, and so anything beyond that is <clears throat> pure speculation. Um, biblical scholars excel in pure speculation, <laughs> but we ought to kind of at least treat the manuscript evidence with, with great seriousness. And the manuscript evidence shows that there's nothing, no, no stage available to us at the moment that suggests these were discrete, which then suggests that they, you know, we ought to reckon with the fact that they're together and they're together for an important reason and that maybe they were together from the get-go. Um, so that raises interesting questions of why chapter three switches into poetry. Maybe we'll get into that. But I think what it suggests to your point is that one and two, um, and as, as well as the prose epilogue, quote unquote, are not after the fact or just prelude and falling action, but are really integral to the plot of the whole book. And I think that's right. They set everything up. I mean, the key issues of the book of Job are announced in some ways already in the first verse. 
And then also in this important verse nine that I trust we'll talk about momentarily. And then, and then in other verses in chapter uh, one and two. So I think that the prologue is integral and we might want to continue to call it prologue, but if we do, we should probably always, at least in our mind, gloss it with prose prologue, right? I mean, it's a prose entry and then there's a poetic section and then there's a prose outro, as it were. Now, Brent, what do you take to be the most challenging part of understanding the first two chapters of Job? Well, I think there are several, actually, right? I mean, one is the whole setup here, um, this cosmic wager uh, between, between God and the, and the adversary figure, the Satan figure. Uh, you know, this is kind of a challenging idea or image to think about that these uh, supernatural beings are kind of just, you know, meeting up in Vegas and wagering on Job. You know, I mean, it's, it's not entirely an endearing image. And poor Job, right? He knows uh, that he's got a lot on his plate, but he kind of doesn't even know the half of it, right? I mean, you can only imagine what he would have thought if he knew this was all just sort of a, a bet, you know? It was, hey, God, listen, next time don't brag on me so much. I'm fine down here. Right. You know, I think that's an important point, eh? Is that, is that Job is not privy to what goes on in the first, you know, chapter. Yeah. That's right. Carl Bart said this kind of beautifully. He says something like, you know, uh, the, 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 the center of Job's problem is how, how, how he has to do with God. And yet he has no idea how far he has to do with God. I mean, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. So he knows he has to deal with God. God is, God is his problem, as it were, in the book. But he kind of has, in one sense, no idea how far he has to do with God, that all this really goes back to a to a bet, <laughs> you know. I got twenty to one on Job. What do you got? What do you got? Uh, what's the spread? You know? um, so that's that's something that's challenging. Um, the other challenging thing, it really is. I mentioned it a second ago. Verse nine, uh, where Satan or the Satan, the adversary figure, responds to God's, uh, you know, pointing Job out. Um, Does Job fear God for nothing? That that's really. You know, what does that mean? And what is that Hebrew word, Hanan? What does that mean that for nothing? Uh, what, what's going on with that? That's a, that's a big question. I mean, it's on one hand, you know, just a grammatical question even, right? Or a philological question, but it's a real big interpretive question. What, what is the adversary figure accusing here, uh, Job of here or, or wondering about? Um, and the, the term is, is repeated um, as we go. So I think that really poses the central problem on the divine side and there's yet another one that i think i would lift up um or maybe two well i mean one we kind of mentioned i didn't point it out but what is this adversary figure right that's an interesting mm -hmm. question in the mm -hmm. opening but who is this satan figure the nrsv has a big capital s satan with no definite article but the hebrew has the definite article suggesting that it's probably not a personal name. You don't do that in Hebrew, really. You don't say the Brent or the LeBron or something like that. You just, <laughs> you just say the name. So um, other translations like the Common English Bible have, have adversary. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's an issue. Um, but two others that I think are also interesting in terms of uh, interpretation and, and philology is um, this for opening verse. You know, there once was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. Uh, that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There's kind of four descriptors there. Uh, mm -hmm. but what does it mean that he's 
blameless and upright, right? Uh, what does it mean to fear God, turn away from evil? That, that in some ways is the beginning of the problem. He's too good, you know, in a way. And, <laughs> and that's what draws God's attention to him and the right. Satan's attention to him. So that's important. And the final thing I'll say here in these opening uh, chapters is what does this word uh, bless and curse mean? Oh, yeah. uh, when Job's wife comes, says, curse God and die. The Hebrew text doesn't say curse. It says bless God and die. And so in two places here in the opening chapters, most translations treat the verb in Hebrew, uh, which means to bless. They treat it as a kind of a euphemism, uh, meaning in the, it's, it's opposite to, to curse. And they translate accordingly. But in the Hebrew text, they're all just bless. And that, that's an interpretive question. Those, these are, there's a number of them then, Ronnie, right? You said one, I said, here's about six or seven. Sure. Well, that's why I'm glad we've got you on here to explain all of this to us, Brandon. We can have it all sorted. Five minutes, tops. Yeah. Well, let's begin at the top. Job chapter one, verse one. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now, some people read that verse as something like once upon a time in a land far, far, far away. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think it's helpful or encouraging to think of Job as a kind of fairy tale or does it make a difference? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I, Every time I think about Job, I think of this, I think it was probably my first year teaching. And one of the things I do is I uh, let students ask me any question they want to on the last day of class. Uh, I've learned- It's the already, last day, right? You keep those hard questions day, for the last day. Right? <laughs> I make sure the class evaluations are done before. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I joke with them. It's kind of like when you're in middle school and you take sex education classes, you can write an anonymous question, right? <laughs> Give it to the teacher, you know? So uh, you can ask your question. So I take them anonymously and uh, I've learned over the years to take them ahead of time and, and think a little bit about them. Can't usually ask and answer all of them. But I remember, because probably because I was so- scared my first year of teaching as memories burned into my permanent memory banks that a student asked, um, did the, did, did the book of Job happen? That was the question. And of course, immediately being professorial and interested in professorial sleights of hand, I, <laughs> I thought this is a fantastic, um, phrasing of the question because it gives me some latitude here. And I remember when I answered the question, I said, uh, what does it mean for a book to happen? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit of a fast one, but it's true, right? What does it mean for a book to happen? I think the book of Job happens every time we read the book of Job. And that's, that's real. That book of Job is, is happening when we read it. Now, I know what the student meant, right? And, and what you're getting at, Ronnie, is, 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 is there something behind this story and kind of reality? And um, that's a harder question to answer for a couple of reasons, one of which is we don't even know where the land of us is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where was the land of us? Uh, Sounds like the Wizard of Oz or something, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. someone suggested that. It's like that, right? The Wizard of Us. And um, yeah, so that makes it a little trickier to put all your eggs in sort of the historical basket if you can't even locate it on a map. Um, there's other questions like that in the book. Um, that suggest, at least for us now, an inability to fully access the reality behind the text. <laughs> so there's a, a little exchange about this already in the in the Talmud, where uh, one of the rabbis uh, waxes that this proves, this opening verse proves that that the book of Job is a parable. And another rabbi says, but if it's a parable, why did they say his name and where he's from? 
Uh-huh. So the rabbis already in, in the Talmud are, are disagreeing with one saying the details suggest it's not just parabolic. The other suggesting that maybe there's something parabolic. I think if you combine those things for me, it suggests that there is a kind of level of specificity about the tale. Um, but that doesn't, in my own mind, uh, negate its possible parabolic function. Um, Walter Moberly calls this, it's kind of, the book of Job is narrative theology. Since so much of it's poetry, I don't really want to go with narrative as the primary adjective, <laughs> but, but a, a kind of literary theology. I think uh, it is, um, the book of Job can function parabolically, that the figure of Job functions regardless in an exemplary fashion. That is to say, and I, and I think I said this way back when to my student in my first year of teaching 20 some years ago, when my grandmother, may she rest in peace, read the book of Job, which I assume she did in the course of her Christian life, what mattered for her in the book of Job was not where us was or even exactly who Job was, but what the book of Job said that spoke to her own sufferings or relationship mm -hmm. with God. And so, um, yeah, I think people shouldn't divide too hard and fast between it. One hand, this is real and therefore it's meaningful. Oh, it's, it's parabolic. It's not real. Actually, the parable can be every bit as real, if not more real. And that's why Jesus Christ taught in so many parables, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So we get introduced to Job there in verse one, and then we hear about this pious man also enjoying this great prosperity, right? He has thousands mm -hmm. of sheep and, and so forth, and he has these 10 children. And then verse five talks about how... Uh, so the children would hold these feasts for one another on each other's day, which might have been the birthdays of the children. Right. Uh, but after those feast days, uh, it says Job would go early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, each of the children. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what God, what Job always did. What do you think is going on here with this description of Job and his overkill sacrifices mm. well first we would say job for sure would send his kids to sanford i mean i think that's what we would say <laughs> first and foremost being a good parent and all i mean i i'm interested in your take um well i if, if nothing else i think this is just a further sort of narrative fleshing out of that first verse this gives concrete examples of how pious this guy really is i mean he's uber pious maybe we could even think he's a bit obsessively pious you know maybe yeah. overly pious i mean maybe he's uh you know uh, not and he's perhaps the kids right perhaps the kids and here again it's blessed perhaps the kids have blessed god in their heart which right. must mean like we say in the south bless their heart <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we don't really mean bless their heart we mean curse them with a vile curse but anyway yeah. maybe maybe that's what that means in that in that verse but I, I think it just underscores his piety exemplary piety over the top piety what's your yeah. take will yeah I, I agree with you on that and i wonder if it's so over the top that it actually suggests a little chink in job's pious armor right he mm. is it says in verse one there that he fears the lord right yeah, but right Maybe that fear is not integrated with trust. Uh, mm. Maybe he is so afraid that he feels like he has to offer all of these sacrifices just to protect his children from some possible sin that they may have committed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so maybe 
it this is a this little narrative detail is suggesting that things aren't quite right in the way that Job thinks about God here at the beginning of the book. Even though he's super pious, he's, he doesn't have a full understanding of what that relationship with God could look like. That's Can I push back a little bit? Yeah. So the Lord says to the Satan, right, in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns yeah. away from evil. Yeah. So the divine perspective kind of reinforced the blamelessness of Job. Yeah? Right. Well, I'm not. And the, here's the thing. It's important. The offering these sacrifices is not a blameworthy thing to do. I mean, you can't be blamed right, okay. for offering sacrifices. Right. So it's it's not that he's do doing anything wrong okay. when he does this, uh, but mm. it, in doing it, going over the top with the sacrifices, <laughs> he may be yeah. suggesting that. I think a, a big undercurrent of the whole book is fear. Um, it's fear of suffering. It's the kind of fear that we all have. Mm -hmm. And Job is showing the lengths to which he will go mm. in the belief that his piety might protect him and those he loves mm. from suffering. Mm. But to Ronnie's point, I think where you were sort of getting at, maybe Ronnie, it, it is intriguing is that does this detail, what, you know, Will's point aside for a moment, does it actually underscore Job's incomparable piety? Right. Like, so as a hyperbolic. Kind yeah, of. yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> so in verse six, you alluded to this earlier as one of the, uh, you know, difficult things about uh, the book of Job. Who is this Satan character? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one day the now the NRSV says the heavenly beings mm -hmm. um, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Who is this? Satan. Is this the best way to translate that? The heavenly beings? What's going on here? You know, my, my own sense of this in terms of the ancient Near Eastern context of the biblical literature is that the uh, divine beings here, the children of God that come in are, are, are seen to be, um, are best seen or imagined as the equivalent of the divine entourage that we see so often in ancient Near Eastern religious um, uh, paradigms and, 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 and pantheons, really, that the uh, high God in the engineer East, usually with a consort, is the, uh, the father and therefore also the mother with the consort of all the other divine beings who are then their children. Um, this is common, especially in the Levant and ancient Israel, Palestine and, and north with the places like Ugarit and all the rest. So I think what we have here in Job 1 and 2 and also traces of it elsewhere um, in 1 Kings 22 and hints of it maybe in Isaiah 6, even in, in some language in Genesis 1 to 11, we have a kind of image here of the divine council, um, the divine entourage, as it were, that God is surrounded by a heavenly host uh, in more common Christian um thinking you, people might think of those as angels but in the ancient world uh, they were thought of as you know as as junior godlings of if you will and what's intriguing is that we really don't know any of their names in the uh, old testament uh, with a couple exceptions that's in marked contrast with the other ancient near eastern religions where all all of these junior folk are named and and uh, identified but but here is a kind of name but again not a name because it has a definite article the the satan hasatan and so it seems that at this point in job and in israelite religion or at least according to the the thought of the author or authors who gave us job 
is that in this divine entourage, there are different people who play different roles. And Hasatan, this adversary figure, the Satan figure, plays some sort of uh, accusatory role. Um, and so that is means that this, this figure is part of the, the divine entourage um, and yet has a particular kind of role to play in the divine council. And that role is played out here in the first two chapters and never again in the book. The figure's never mentioned again, doesn't come back at the end or anything like that. So that's, I think, the, the, the background metaphor or image that is, is operative here, this notion of a divine counselor, divine entourage, with God having a, a, a number of, of beings that God is sort of in cahoots with that play different roles. And, and one plays a particular role vis-a-vis Job, unfortunately for Job. Right. And, and so this adversary figure has this role, this responsibility within the divine council of, right. of accusing, right? right? Kind of like a prosecuting attorney that mm-hmm. you might encounter in our legal, I mean, you're a professor of the law, so you know all about this. Uh, <laughs> I do. Not, not yeah. really, but yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so the prosecuting attorney's job is to attack That's the, right. the defendant. Uh, that's what they're supposed to do. And so the accuser or the adversary here, he's in some sense doing his job, uh, attacking right. Job right, uh, and, and playing his role. And his attack focuses in, in, in chapter one, verse nine, on this particular question, does Job fear God for nothing? <clears throat> and you could argue this is maybe not even the crucial verse only in the prologue, but perhaps in the book as a whole, does Job fear God for nothing? What does it mean, Brent? What is this question getting at? Well, just a quick footnote on the adversary too. I I think it's important for listeners to realize that we probably have in in the corpus of scripture as something then of a development of thought about this Mm -hmm. Satan figure that, that at this point in Job, it's not yet a fully blown separate individual um, you know, capital S Satan by the time we get to the New Testament and other stuff. I think that's important to know. And, and, and to your earlier point about this accusatory role of prosecuting attorney, that there's nothing at this point that's sort of inherently evil about this character. They're playing, they're playing their role, doing their part. Um, and therefore, it's not an adequate answer. I think this is, this is most important. It's not an adequate answer to what's going on in Job to say, well, Satan caused it you know, um, capital S Satan caused it. That's, that's, that's the answer to the problem of, of suffering and evil that Job is about Satan causing. No, not really. (laughs) The the Satan figure is, is involved, but drops out real quickly. And God knows, and Job know that the real thing is between the two of them. Uh, and the Satan figure is, is mostly, you know, out. So that's, that's important. Now to your question about verse nine, um, you know, Hey, Will, what do you think it means? <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I, uh, I, I will admit that I like, um, Walter Moberly's sort of, uh, memorable pithy kind of reformulation of verse nine as, uh, as, as getting at the question is Job in it for what he gets out of it? Yeah. I kind of like, I like that formula. Is Job so pious just because of what he gets out of it? Is he like, you know, whatever, whenever we date the book of Job, Iron Age, whatever, is he Iron Age version of the prosperity gospel, right? So he's right. in it, you know, because he's got tons of stuff. Um, that, that's what, in some ways, what the Satan figure is, at, is, is inquiring. 
look, you got all this stuff. Of course he likes you. You know, <laughs> of course, of course, Job is fears God and turns away from evil. But we'll get rid of that stuff. Let's see. Let's see. Right. Let's see if he's if he's in it for what he gets out of it. Take away the, what he gets out. Let's see if he's still in it. So he's functioning as a kind of quality control figure. Yeah. On both <laughs> Job's piety, but also on God's declaration over Job. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, uh, yeah, you could. I like that a lot and hadn't thought about it as much that in some ways the accusation is also to God. Right. You've you've provided these hedges, these fences around him. Right. Of course, it's easy to believe in God at that point. Right. You know? yeah, um, yeah. What about the trenches, though? Yeah, we often think of this as a test of Job and his faith, but it's also a test of God mm-hmm. and God's worthiness of faith, right? Mm-hmm. Is God really worthy of faith or is he just, you know, the kind of cosmic Santa Claus, right? Uh, right where, <laughs> you know, if people, if people ask him for stuff and then he'll give them things, but you start to wonder if people, if that were the way that we mm-hmm. thought about God, do they really love God, right? Do they love him hinam for nothing mm-hmm. or do they just love the stuff that God gives them right so right, yeah. the question i think is that's behind this is is a prosperity driven piety really piety at all is that mm-hmm. really a mm-hmm. uh, a faith in god uh, or just a appreciation for those things right? yeah that's that's very that's very poignant i think and in the old testament's dying book you mentioned earlier i, I have a whole chapter where i kind of talk about the mm-hmm. prosperity gospel so it's, it's a matter of concern for me um and again, to quote Moberly, you know, he, he has another memorable way of, of thinking about this is that, you know, in, in Job, if, if you're talking about the relationship with God as akin to a marriage, we're, we're really wondering if Job is in it for better and for worse, for richer mm-hmm. and for poorer. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the latter part of those equations is what I worry about in prosperity gospel kind of presentations. And in my own very limited, I will admit, uh, uh, probe of that literature it was striking to me how Job didn't really figure in at all. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think Job really uh, is a is a fly in the ointment of prosperity <laughs> uh, gospel thinking. And I think you're putting your finger on it, Will. Yeah. So after asking this question, as we've talked about, God agrees to the wager or the bet and allows the Satan to take that prosperity away from Job. And then in 120, we see Job's response uh, Mm -hmm. after uh, he's lost all of his possessions and his 10 children. Uh, It says, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. So what's going on here and what is the significance of what Job does here for our understanding of the rest of the book? Um, You know, I've been thinking about this a little bit because I wrote a piece recently about this particular word worship here. Mm. Um, And I wonder if it's, well, I, I, you know, I wrote this this piece on the the word worship, so I would hope it applies here, but um, he he responds appropriately in, with mourning rituals. I mean, that's the first thing. Shaved his head, tore his robe, fell on the ground. Uh, so all that is sort of mourning, traditional mourning rituals. So he's he's obviously deeply distraught by what has happened. And then this worship is the is the question, right? What is, what does that mean? So this little piece that I did, and it hasn't been published yet. So let's keep it under wraps, but feel free to tweet it, you know, if you want. (laughs) (laughs) Is that uh, this particular word, it's kind of this this weird word, right, Um, Will, that's that's hishtafel or whatever. Uh, And the the verbal root is related to the word to to have life. Um, And then 
it is in this unusual formulation that's sort of causative and reflexive. So to be kind of mechanistic about it, if you, in this particular form, this word could mean something like to procure life for oneself. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that, that's the substance of my article. And I, I try to demonstrate it by reference to some ancient Near Eastern art, actually, that shows similar kinds of attitudes and postures. So in this formulation, worshipped, that, that's it's kind of the word they use for worship. But I think kind of at the at the root level, what this means is that in this process of whatever these people are doing, they are procuring life for themselves. They, and so in this sense, he's sort of hoping, begging that he doesn't get killed, too. I think yeah. is, is, is part of what that worship did. So he's not overcome with, Oh Lord, I love you. You know, everybody's <laughs> dead. I just, let's have a praise service. It's not that it's I'm distraught. I'm deeply um, mournful and maybe even afraid I'm adopting a serious posture of obeisance of, of, of submission. And, and in part that may procure life for myself. Maybe I won't be killed. Um, so that, that's kind of a little, exegetical detail that i've been thinking about lately with that particular verb worship right yeah that's fascinating and and the morning ritual fits that idea because Mm -hmm. it's starting a process the end of which is we hope uh a restore a restoration to life Mm -hmm. uh, a restoration to life in the community and so Mm -hmm. what we're seeing here is the beginning of that whole process now what we encounter over the course of the dialogues is how bumpy that process becomes yeah. it doesn't work out the way that we would expect it to yeah uh, but it's it's starting here and i think we do have to understand what you've pointed to the role of mourning but also this worship uh to understand what goes on from here on in the book yeah and maybe maybe this relates a little bit to to your observation about about verse five you know maybe maybe if that uh if, if there's some self-interest in the worship worship verb, and I don't mean that in a dismissive way, uh, because that that would be in every case of where this worship verb occurs. If there's at least some self-interest in there, then then maybe there is something here that's slightly indicative of of Job's piety and where it needs to be uh, reformed or 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 uh, you know differently formed. Um, yeah. That he has appro- he is appropriately mourning the loss. Of children and and servants, et cetera, but but he's also realizing that th- he could be next, <laughs> and so he's sort of wanting to you know cut that off at the pass. All right, well, the, that whole cycle, Brent, of the heavenly beings and the Satan presenting themselves before God, and then you know wanting to afflict Job and then afflicting him, that whole pr- cycle happens in chapter one and it happens again in chapter two. Mm-hmm. Why is this repeated again in the second chapter? Well, I mean, I, I don't think I have any great insight into this other than that, uh, you know, the, the bet's still going, you know, Satan wants <laughs> double or nothing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, on the one hand, what you've, what you've accomplished so far in the first test, God is just, all the stuff around Job. Um, and he's passed. I mean, he's passed. He's disconsolate, uh, but he's submissive. He may be seeking life for himself, but who wouldn't, right? Who, he, who wouldn't think I'm next uh, in this unfortunate series of, of circumstances? But he's passed. So, but let's see, you know, you haven't actually touched his body yet. 
So let's see, <laughs> let's see, you know, everyone, anything that they have, they'll give, you know, for their, for their life, um, as it says. So, you know, let's, let's have double or nothing. Let's see, stretch out and touch his flesh. Let's see how it goes then. So I think this is upping the ante mm-hmm. and um, there's really no escape now. Job has in a sense procured life for himself, but it could be a miserable life. And I think that's the, that's mm-hmm. the next stage in the process. How how miserable can Job's life become? And is he still in it for what he gets out of it? Or is he in for better, for worse, for sickness and in hell? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in in the midst of that process, we have chapter two, verse three. So <clears throat> after Job has responded uh, with this morning ritual and with worship, uh, the Lord says to Satan, uh, we get again, you know, have you considered my servant Job? And mm-hmm. we get that repetition from the first chapter. But then um, God says he still persists in his integrity, although you, talking to the Satan, incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Right? <laughs> so this, you know, the Satan being, it, it looks like the Satan has convinced Job to, um, has convinced God to do right. something for no reason. Uh, so what do you think is going on there? Well, you know, to quote Kenny Rogers, God knows when to hold them, knows when to hold them, <laughs> knows when to walk away, knows when to run. Um, yeah, you know, that that's the same word, right? For nothing, for nothing. There's There's two types of for nothing going on here. And it's not a great look for God in the one uh, uh, on the one hand. Now, I think when we think about that, though, a couple of things have to be said. I mean, one is this is in some sense required by the story. Uh, so as the story of Job is happening and unfolding and, you know, this this is this is part of what just has to happen. Um, and so I think it's quite apart from questions of divine ontology or how God is and within God's own essence and all that. This is, this is sort of required by the literary world um, that the author is recounting as it's being established, as it's unfolding. This, this is sort of just part of that. Um, That doesn't necessarily fix the image or, you know, the depiction of God, but it does suggest that it may be limited to the literary world that we're dealing with. The other thing, though, I well, two other things. Part of that, I think, is uh, that first part. Maybe as a, <clears throat> a writer, is um, what we're, what we see in the Book of Job here is a pretty strong, a pretty strong. Maybe will you disagree? I mean, Ron, you might have thoughts on this too. I think what we have is a pretty strong depiction of God as basically a monocausal agent. You know that things that happen in the world are basically all attributable to God. Now, that's going to be no problem for some listeners who are fine with that is if they have a big, you know, healthy, robust sense of divine sovereignty. If you happen to be a Methodist like me, it makes you worry at night. You know, you wake up sweating, you know, really is all this, you know, where's free agency? Give me some John Wesley, you know. Um, so monocausality means, you know, if you're a really hardcore monotheist or you're really hardcore in terms of the, the power of the, the, the divine a figure at the head of the pantheon, then everything ultimately is attributable to that figure. So good, evil, you know, um, wheel and woe and all that. So there's an aspect of that. And so that's, again, another, another reason why the Satan figure is not the, not the ultimate cause of, of Job's problems. God, God's own character says, 
you incited me. (laughs) So the third thing I want to say, though, is that despite this might trouble us as moderns, I think this is like right on with ancient Near Eastern depictions of deity. If you, in some cases, I think, in some cases, the reason why the gods, including the God of Israel in scripture, is described in such stunning, arresting, and truly disturbing ways is nothing more than a literary depiction underscoring the fact that these are gods, not human beings. You don't mess with them. You don't try to cozy up with them. You just try to placate them and make sure you don't annoy them and make them mad. Um, Don't draw too much attention to yourself. You know, this is what Ecclesiastes will say, maybe because Ecclesiastes learned it from Job, you know. But in other words, the weird, some of the weirdest depictions in the Bible are actually, in my judgment, just ways the authors of scripture are saying, don't mess around, you know, be sure who you know what, who you're dealing with. This is God, no less than God. God is not subject to our modern construals of what is and is not appropriate for a divine figure to be. Divine figures don't worry about human morals and categories. They're above all that. And in fact, that's partly what God says to Job in the end of the Job speeches. You know, you know where were you? I'm, the, I'm in charge of this thing. You, you yeah. were born last week. I mean, to that point, we as readers worry a, a good bit about this, whether this is justified, what God has done. But if we look at it rhetorically, the role it's playing here in this chapter is God is using the fact that the Satan incited him to destroy Job for no reason. Uh, he's using that uh, to make the point, to support the point that Job is blameless, mm-hmm. right? There's mm-hmm. no reason why this could have happened. This right. should have happened to him. Uh, and so in the, this rhetorical function. Yeah, I like that. That's really it, good. It's more about supporting that point that God. Yeah, nice. About. That's a, yeah, I like that a lot. I like that. <laughs> um, now let's get, go to turn to chapter two, verse nine to Job's wife. And here we read, then his wife said to him, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse. And I have a footnote there. Yeah. <laughs> Curse or bless God and die. What do we do with Job's wife? Yeah, well, first point about these footnotes and translations, I think it's Umberto Eco who said that footnotes and translations are a sign of weakness. the the translator should decide and make it happen but on this verb this to bless which uh, translating here is curse um yeah it's the exact opposite of bless right these are antonyms and um doesn't mean curse they have a perfectly good verb for curse and um so the translations that we have in English are making a decision that sometimes they have a little footnote because they want you to know. And, you know, this is, these translations are contextually determined. Um, so what is she saying? I, there's a nice little essay by Todd Linnefelt, who teaches at Georgetown University, about the undecidability of Beirich in Job, uh, that it's just impossible to decide if this verb means curse or bless in some instances. And I think that Todd is, is probably right. And it makes a difference, right? If, if she says, um, curse God and die, then it seems like she's pretty um, dour and just kind of piling on. <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you still pious at all? Curse God and die. Just let it, get, let it go, give up on it. 
But if she says, bless God and die, that could be a different kind of emotional quality to it, right? Or maybe she says, bless God and die ironically, right? In which case, then it's the same as, as, as curse God and die. Tone, emotional tone is something we have to infer from written, written literature. It's, it's almost never obvious. We have to argue about it. And I think that's an important thing to, for, for readers of scripture to know, especially as they start getting into kind of further analysis and study of the Bible, is that, you know, what you might think is uh, straightforward, maybe it's ironic, right? Maybe it's sarcastic. I mean, maybe, who knows, right? I mean, we say this with a, you know, through clenched teeth or say this with a wink in your eye and it, and, and it changes, and we have enough evidence, I think, from certain texts in scripture to show that certain things are, are ironically said. So Brandon, maybe, well, it, sorry, is it, is, it, is it possible to take this as a kind of uh, her saying, bless God and you die anyways? Yeah, maybe so, possible? right? Okay. Yeah, or, you know, yeah, I mean, at this point, he's, 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 uh, he's feeling pretty bad, right? I mean, he's, he's very sick. He's scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, why not just call it quits? Um, so, uh, you know, like, it's, look, how good, look, look how much your blessing has got you. It's got yeah, you yeah. death, basically. Yeah. She's a fascinating character in the history of interpretation. Will might want to regale us right now. <laughs> no, she is fascinating. I mean, and then again, just like we talked about the last one, you have to read what she says in light of Job's response to her. That's right. That's right. For sure. Right. And so he he rejects whatever she says. Job doesn't think it's the right answer, right? Because mm -hmm. he says, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. But I actually think it's super significant that he doesn't say that you are foolish. Mm -hmm. He says, you speak as any foolish woman would speak, which suggests that he actually has a high view of his wife, mm -hmm. uh, that what he's surprised by or disappointed by mm -hmm. here is that she's speaking like a foolish woman, but mm -hmm. he knows that she's not. And mm -hmm. I actually think that this, this verse right here is in, indicative of the way that Job will proceed to talk to God. Mm -hmm. um, what he'll say to God is, you are acting like a God who is not just mm -hmm. and good. Yeah. So just as he says to the wife, you're acting like a foolish wife. Though I know you're right. not. Right, right. right. Uh, that the, again, this is one of those just, I think, little hints here in the prologue that help mm -hmm. us think in a certain way, this distance that can be created between someone's true character and the way that they can act in a specific situation in yeah. Job's perception of that distinction. Uh, I like that a lot. And I, and I actually like 10b shall we receive the good at the hand of god and not receive the bad i think that's a really rather remarkable statement of course to be put in conversation with others but for me that's a remarkable statement about kind of israelite piety of job's piety and to me has been uh, a, a central verse in my thinking about a theology of scripture actually mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah that's helpful okay so 210 uh we just mentioned that in the narrator after that that statement that Job makes says in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Uh -huh. And there's a similar judgment in 122 after Job makes that famous statement about, uh -huh. um, um, from, I know I came from my womb and blessed be the name of the Lord uh, came from my mother's womb and, and to, our, to the earth, I will return. So in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. But in this case, it just says he didn't sin with his lips. Uh -huh. So some take this, 
later qualification as an open door to suggest that Job may have sinned in his heart, mm-hmm. even if he didn't sin with his lips. So mm-hmm. what do you think? Yeah, this sounds kind of rabbinic, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the kind of detail that's there in the text that uh, I can see this could be kind of a midrashic detail. I don't know if the rabbis did, but they it, do, they do, they do. do, they, do they, oh, yeah. yeah. They'll and, then go to other places in the book of Job to find things he says and say, see, there's an example of him. Yeah. You know. There you go with the lips and looking for the lips and all that. Yeah. So. I, you know, the detail is there for sure. And of course, then it invites exegetical discussion and comparison. And so I can see where that kind of idea emerges from. Um, otherwise, why is it there? Why not just say he didn't sin, you know, period, yeah. we'll stop. Why is this little with his lips included? But even though with his lips is included, what's not included is he sinned in his heart, right? That's, that's a secondary sort of inference. So I don't, I'm not inclined to think that. I'm not inclined to think that that the narrator is sort of saying that Job is a sinner deep in his heart, just not with his lips. I, I don't know, maybe because I'm so impressed by the opening statement of about Job's piety in one one and its reaffirmation in in by God and the Satan figure um, twice, right? From God twice. And then also God's positive evaluation of Job afterwards in chapter 42. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm not inclined to think that this is a sort of saying, yeah, Job, he really sinned in his heart. Eh, I don't know. I think rather the emphasis is on, uh, you know, he, he hasn't misspoken. And that's, that's also something that comes out in chapter 42. He, he doesn't misspeak, evidently, according to God. Job's friends, they come, they they sit in silence um, for seven days, and, and at least here they seem to be doing pretty well. Uh, yeah. But then we get that switch to poetry in chapter three. And I've already mentioned you've thought a lot about poetry in the mm-hmm. Old Testament. What do you think is the significance of the switch from prose to poetry here? Well, I can I can be brief. See, I'm too too long-winded. I think in brief, <laughs> what this shows is that poetry is 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 used and is necessary also for the most difficult concepts to, uh, that human beings need and want to discuss. I mean, there's a lot of poetry in the Bible. What's interesting is it comes out at key junctures and it's used in particular moments. Uh, the word of God in pro- prophecy, primarily poetic. Uh, difficult topics like death. There's Ecclesiastes with uh, significant poetry. Uh, love and sensuality, even Eros, Song of Songs in poetry. And what about suffering and evil and uh, the problem of kind of uh, of life and being on the underside of life? Poetry is necessary in its job. So, so we need poetry to, to grasp at the hardest things to talk about. And it may be that it's the only way to talk about the hardest things, in part because it can't say everything but what it says is so much more evocative and powerful than just prose. So I think the shift to three shows this is how distraught Job really is. And he's elevating his discourse as a result. And his, and his friends, once they involved in the theological discussion of it, they respond in kind because this is you know, high level stuff and only the highest speech and, and human um, you know, art forms can begin to approach it in any way that just doesn't trivialize it. Yeah. 
Well, um, speaking of switching genres, uh, <laughs> let's switch to the genre that you are you are an expert in. You're, you're a professional blurber. Uh, rarely do I pick up a book and it doesn't have a blurb from Brent Strawn on the back. Uh, so one of the things that we like to do at the end of our episodes, and we're just so grateful that you would take the time um, to talk with us today in this episode on Job 1 and 2, but one of the things we like to do at the end is ask our guests if they have a blurb they'd like to share with us. And it doesn't have to be of a book. Uh, it could be, but, you know, it could be a TV show or a movie or a life hack you've recently discovered that you think others might profit from. So do you have a blurb for us, Brent? Two words. Horse mats. OK, horse mats. Um, and what I want to say about horse mats, I'm just going to I'm going to I think that probably no one else on your show will say horse mat. So we recently. <laughs> changed part of our garage into a kind of a home workout area and uh flooring 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 is an issue right what do you especially want to park your car on the flooring you're gonna your car will mess up the flooring but not if you go with horse mats i found horse mats online and they will support a car because they'll support a horse and so i'm really happy with these horse mats we ordered them we had to wait a long time for them to come. They were heavy, uh, as you might imagine, but I love the horse mats. I recommend horse mats strongly if you're going to put any flooring in for, you know, workout purposes or or you want to park your car on them, you know, the right. horse mats. That's what I would say. Right. Okay. Well, and increasingly these days with COVID, people are putting in workout rooms <laughs> at home. And so yes. if you're going to do that, get your horse mats. Horse okay. mats. That's I, I, I blurb horse mats. I give it five stars on Amazon. Well, Brent, thanks for taking the time uh, to guide us through these first two chapters of Job. And uh, thanks to our listeners for listening in. If you would like to alleviate our suffering, um, you can go to our website and subscribe. You can go to the two testaments.com. There you can subscribe to our uh, website and you can also follow us, like us wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends so you can alleviate their suffering too. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for having me on, y'all. I really enjoyed it. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarland, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plum, for their help with production, editing, and promotion. 